This episode of the OrthoBullets audio review podcast will go over the topic of prosthetic joint infection from the recon section on orthobullets.com. FYI, this is the most tested topic from the recon category. The incidence of prosthetic joint infection in primary joint replacement is 1-2% to in total knee arthroplasty versus 03 to 1.3% in total hip arthroplasty. The incidence in revision joint replacement is 5-6% to in total knee arthroplasty versus 3 to 4% in total hip arthroplasty. Risk factors for prosthetic joint infection can be broken down into preoperative and postoperative risk factors. Preoperative risk factors include active infection, whether that entails a local cutaneous, subcutaneous, deep tissue, or joint infection, or a systemic septicemia. Previous local surgery or prior local infection is another preoperative risk factor. Consider the case of a 70-year-old male presenting two years status post-fixation of an impending pathologic femur fracture due to a metastatic renal cell carcinoma, who is minimally ambulatory due to pain, and despite radiation therapy, the lesion progressed with extensive cortical bone loss for which proximal femoral replacement arthroplasty is performed without complications. In this case, deep prosthetic infection is the most common complication after hip arthroplasty performed for salvage or failed internal fixation after pathologic proximal femur fracture secondary to malignancy. Jakovsky et al. reviewed the complications in 42 patients with a mean age of 63 who were treated with hip arthroplasty for salvage of failed treatment of a pathologic proximal femur fracture. Multiple different constructs were used. The most common complication was deep prosthetic infection, which occurred in nearly 10% of the patients studied. All infections occurred in patients who had previously received radiation. The mean Harris hip score improved from 42 to 83 points postoperatively, and 41 of the 42 patients were ambulatory at follow-up. Implant survivorship free of revision for any reason at 5 years was 90% and free of revision for aseptic failure or radiographic failure was 97%. Postoperative risk factors include immune suppression, inflammatory arthropathy, and certain lifestyle factors. As far as immune suppression, this includes immunosuppressant drugs and immunosuppressive conditions. Examples of immunosuppressive drugs include anti-TNF agents, you know, drugs like infliximab, etanercept, adalimumab, sertolizumab, and golimumab. Other drugs include corticosteroids and antimetabolites like leflunamide. Immunosuppressive conditions include poorly controlled diabetes mellitus, that is technically a hemoglobin A1c greater than 7, chronic renal disease, acute liver failure, HIV with CD4 counts less than 400, and malnutrition, which is measured by things like albumin of less than 3.5 and total serum leukocytes less than 800. Another postoperative risk factor for prosthetic joint infection is inflammatory arthropathy, which include conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, and ankylosing spondylitis. Certain lifestyle factors can be risk factors like morbid obesity, smoking, excessive alcohol consumption, intravenous drug use, and poor oral hygiene. 
The pathophysiology of prosthetic joint infection is secondary to pathogens like bacteria and fungal pathogens. The most common bacterial organisms include Staph aureus, Staph epidermidis, and coagulase negative Staphylococcus, which are typically found in chronic infections. The most common fungal pathogen is the Candida species. Examples include Candida albicans. Prophylaxis for prosthetic joint infection can be broken down into screening, operative, and postoperative. As far as screening, you want to screen and optimize risk factors. You want to use nasal mupirocin for decolonization of nasal MSSA or MRSA. Routine urine cultures are not warranted preoperatively unless there's a history or symptoms of UTI. Stop the use of DMARDs, that is disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, four to six weeks prior to surgery. And in the case for a revision joint replacement, make sure there's a normalized ESR, CRP, and the patient is off antibiotics. Operative prophylaxis include things like preoperative skin cleansing with antiseptic wash, systemic antibiotics administered within 30 minutes to incision, and greater than 10 minutes prior to tourniquet in the case of total knee arthroplasty, and with respect to antibiotic prophylaxis, they are typically continued for 24 hours after surgery. In a 2009 JBJS review article, Meehan et al. discussed the use of vancomycin for preoperative prophylaxis in total joint arthroplasty. At their institution, Staph aureus and Staph epidermidis were resistant to cefazolin in 50-70% to of cases, respectively. As far as preventative measures in the operating room itself, vertical laminar airflow systems have been thought to minimize contamination of the surgical field with airborne microbes, and thus it is thought that they contribute to reducing surgical site infections. Another good practice to potentially reduce surgical site infections in the operating room is to limit hospital personnel or traffic in and out of the room. Postoperative prophylaxis includes making sure antibiotics are given prior to any dental work. However, this may be more dependent on host risk factors. As far as classification of prosthetic joint infections, the two major issues to talk about are time of onset and source of the infection. With respect to time of onset, we talk about acute infections versus chronic infections. Acute infections occur within three to six weeks from surgery. The CDC definition of an acute prosthetic joint infection is less than 90 days from date of joint replacement. Staph aureus is commonly associated with acute total hip arthroplasty prosthetic joint infections. The biological features of acute prosthetic joint infections include that they are usually confined to joint spaces, there is no invasion into the prosthetic bone interface, and there is no biofilm production in acute infections. Chronic infections occur more than three to six weeks from surgery. Again, the CDC definition of a chronic prosthetic joint infection is greater than 90 days from date of joint replacement. Staph epidermidis is the most common organism in chronic total hip arthroplasty prosthetic joint infections. The biological features of chronic prosthetic joint infections include invasion of the prosthetic bone interface unlike acute infections. In addition, chronic infections involve biofilm creation on the implant within four weeks. The composition of these biofilms are 15% bacterial cells and 85% is a polysaccharide layer 
known as the glycocalyx. The glycocalyx allows biofilms to adhere to the prosthesis, seal off the infection, and protect bacteria from the host immune system. The consequences of these biofilms are that no method exists to safely remove biofilms, and completely getting rid of them is extremely difficult. And due to the presence of biofilms in chronic infections, prosthetic explant is indicated with infections older than four weeks. The source of infection is typically the result of two mechanisms, direct invasion and hematogenous infection. Direct invasion is typically secondary to a sinus tract into the joint capsule and or wound dehiscence. Hematogenous infection is typically secondary to infection in a long-standing infection-free joint secondary to another infection. For example, in the case of dental work, or an infected gallbladder. As far as imaging for prosthetic joint infections, findings may include periosteal reaction, scattered patches of osteolysis, generalized bone resorption without implant wear, transcortical sinus tracts, and or implant loosening. In a 1995 JAAOS review article, Fitzgerald discusses three types of periprosthetic infection. Stage one is an acute postoperative infection that is radiographically silent. Stage two infections occur six to 24 months after the primary procedure and represent indolent infections that manifest radiographically with new bone formation. Stage three infections occur more than two years after the primary procedure and are the result of hematogenous seeding of the joint by a recent dental or surgical procedure. Another imaging modality to consider is a bone scan, especially when infection is suspected but cannot be confirmed by aspiration or blood work. An important point to remember about bone scans is that technetium bone scans detect inflammation and indium bone scans detects leukocytes. A triple scan can differentiate infection from fracture or bone remodeling. Bone scans to detect prosthetic joint infection are 99% sensitive, but only 30 to 40% specific. Another imaging option is a PET scan, positon emission tomography, and it may help to identify areas of high metabolic activity using fluorinated glucose and these scans are 98% sensitive and 98% specific. The Musculoskeletal Infection Society, MSIS, analyzed the available evidence to propose a new definition for prosthetic joint infections, and they proposed both major criteria and minor criteria. Diagnosis of a prosthetic joint infection can be made when one major criteria exists, and those major criteria are one, a sinus tract communicating with the prosthesis, or two, a pathogen isolated by culture from two separate tissue or fluid samples from the affected joint. As far as minor criteria, diagnosis of a prosthetic joint infection can be made when four out of six minor criteria exist. These minor criteria are one, elevated ESR, that is greater than 30 millimeters per hour, or CRP greater than 10 milligrams per liter. Number two, elevated synovial white blood cell count that is greater than 1,100 cells per microliter for knees or greater than 3,000 cells per microliter for hips. Number three, elevated synovial polymorphonuclear neutrophils or PMNs, which are greater than 64% for knees or greater than 80% for hips. Number four, purulence in the affected joint. However, this finding alone is insufficient as fluid from metal-on-metal -metal articulations, gout, etc. can resemble pus. Number five, the pathogen is isolated in one culture 
and six greater than five PMNs per high-powered field in five different high-powered fields at 400x magnification. This is typically from intraoperative frozen section of periprosthetic tissue sent for analysis. As far as laboratory studies, you'll want to order a blood panel. However, it's important to know the serum white blood cell count is not specific or sensitive for prosthetic joint infection. You'll also want to order ESR and CRP. The physiology of ESR is that it peaks five to seven days after surgery and returns to normal in 90 days or three months. The normal range for ESR greater than six weeks from surgery or in the chronic phase of a suspected infection is less than 300 millimeters per hour. However, there is no consensus for a normal range less than six weeks from surgery or in the acute phase of a suspected infection. The physiology of CRP is that it peaks two to three days after surgery and returns to normal at 21 days or three weeks. The normal range for CRP greater than six weeks from surgery or in the chronic phase of a suspected infection is less than 10 milligrams per liter. And the normal range less than six weeks from surgery or in the acute phase of a suspected infection is less than 100 milligrams per liter. Serum interleukin-6 or IL-6 is another parameter you can test for. The normal range is less than 10 10 picograms per milliliter. This is less commonly followed, but it can monitor and follow the progress of infection. The physiology of IL-6 is that it peaks 8 to 12 hours after surgery and returns to normal 48 to 72 hours after surgery, or 3 days. Although IL-6 is not commonly followed, it has been shown to have the highest correlation with periprosthetic joint infection. It has a sensitivity of 100% and a specificity of 95%. False positives for an elevated IL-6 are found in cases of rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, AIDS, and or Paget's disease of the bone. Joint aspiration should be done whenever there is a strong suspicion of a joint infection in order to confirm the diagnosis. The labs you will want to order on the synovial fluid are a cell count and differential, crystals, a gram stain, and cultures and sensitivity. The lowest serologic value suggestive of infection with respect to cell count and differential in knees are a synovial white blood cell count of greater than 1,100 cells per microliter and PMNs greater than 64% in knees, which is based on the 2008 JBJS article by Ghanem et al., in which the authors reviewed 161 infected total knees versus 268 aseptic failures and concluded that aspiration with white blood cell counts of greater than 1,100 cells per cubic millimeter and PMNs greater than 64% are suggestive of infection. When both tests yielded results below their cutoff values, the negative predictive value was 98.2%, with the 95% confidence interval between 95.5 to 99.5%. Whereas when both tests yielded results greater, infection was confirmed in 98.6 with a 95% confidence interval between 94.9 and 99.8% of the cases. Thus, according to the most recent literature, a synovial white blood cell count greater than 1,100 and PMNs greater than 64% should be considered suggestive of an infection in a TKA. A synovial white blood cell count of greater than 27,800 cells per microliter in the first six weeks after TKA is also suggestive of infection. And with respect to hips, a synovial white blood cell count of greater than 3,000 cells per microliter 
microliter and PMNs greater than 80% suggests an infection, which is based on a 2008 study by Shinsky et al., which reviewed 55 infected and 146 non-infected total hip patients to evaluate which markers are most reliable for diagnosis of prosthetic infection. They found that a synovial fluid count of greater than 3,000 white blood cells per microliter was the most predictive perioperative testing modality when combined with an elevated preoperative erythrocyte sedimentation rate and C-reactive protein level. A gram stain is a stain for bacteria in a fluid or tissue sample. The specificity is greater than the sensitivity in that a positive test would be indicative of infection. However, a negative test does not necessarily rule out infection. Spangle et al., conducted a level 2 study of patients being diagnosed with prosthetic hip infection. They found that a combination of a normal ESR and CRP level has the highest negative predictive value for infection. They also found the gram stain to be unreliable and intraoperative frozen sections useful only in equivocal cases. Repeat aspiration is indicated in cases of inconclusive aspirate and peripheral lab data. Consider the case of a 67-year-old diabetic male presenting four-month status post right total knee arthroplasty, complaining of pain and stiffness for the last four weeks. Blood work shows an ESR of 14 millimeters per hour and a CRP of 2 milligrams per liter. Knee aspiration yields a white blood cell count of 1,000, 30% PMNs, and a negative gram stain. He finished a 14-day course of antibiotics prescribed to him by his primary care physician one week ago. So this clinical scenario describes a patient with an equivocal presentation of a periprosthetic joint infection and recent history of antibiotic use. As such, a repeat aspiration in one week is indicated. Barrick et al., evaluated the utility of routine aspiration of symptomatic TKA before reoperation and found aspiration to have a sensitivity of 75%, a specificity of 96%, and accuracy of 90%. Previous antibiotic use increases the risk of a false negative result, and reaspiration at a later date was found to significantly improve the value of this test in such cases. Parvizi et al. published an AAOS clinical practice guideline on the diagnosis of prosthetic joint infection of the hip and knee using evidence from the literature. They found sufficient evidence to make strong recommendations for the use of ESR, CRP, joint aspiration, intraoperative gram stain, frozen sections of peri-implant tissues, multiple intraoperative cultures, and withholding antibiotics until after cultures have been obtained. Other tests to mention that can be considered are an alpha-defensin immunoassay test and or a leukocyte esterase colorimetric strip test. Alpha-defensin has growing evidence supporting its use in diagnosis of prosthetic joint infection, especially when diagnosis is in question or in the setting of recent antibiotic use. However, it is still prone to false positive results in metal-on-metal implants, and the overall sensitivity and specificity are both 82%, and the negative predictive value and positive predictive value are 92% and 64%, respectively. As far as perioperative analysis, microbiology and histology are the two major categories. With respect to microbiology, Definitive diagnosis can be made if the same organism is obtained by repeat aspirations or in at least three of five periprosthetic specimens obtained at surgery. It's important to keep in mind that the false positive rate is around 8% 
and that tissue samples are better than swabs. With respect to histology, the indications for intraoperative frozen sections are for equivocal cases with elevated ESR and CRP or suspicion for infection. The sensitivity is 85% and specificity is 90-95%, to and again greater than 5 neutrophils per high-powered field in 5 high-powered fields observed from histological analysis of periprosthetic tissue at times 400 magnification is very probable for infection. Now let's talk about treatment of prosthetic joint infections. Non-operative treatment includes chronic suppressive antibiotic therapy in patients that are unfit for surgery or that refuse surgery. There is a 10% to 25% success rate of eradication and an 8 to 21% complication rate. As far as operative interventions, we will discuss the six major options. The first option is polyethylene exchange with component retention and IV antibiotics for four to six weeks. The indications for this option is an acute infection that is less than three weeks after surgery and for an acute hematogenous infection. And although there is weak literature on this, ideally you would want to do this less than 48 to 72 hours from the onset of symptoms. The technique for this is a thorough tissue debridement and irrigation with a large volume of irrigant. Modular parts should be removed to remove the fibrin layer between plastic and metal parts, which act as a nidus of infection. And you always want to make sure the component is actually available for a polyethylene exchange. Outcomes depend on the bacteria speciation. There is 50 to 55% success rate. And remember that implants must be removed if reinfection is documented. Consider the case of a 50-year-old woman who underwent a cemented total knee arthroplasty three weeks ago. She reports that she has one week of drainage the size of a quarter on a gauze pad that she places over the incision three times daily. Her BMI is 53, and her medical problems include hypertension and type 2 diabetes. Blood work shows a CRP of 1.1 milligrams per liter. Again, normal is between 1 to 3 milligrams per liter. The knee aspiration yields a white blood cell count of 673 cells per cubic millimeter with 30% PMNs and a negative gram stain. There is no surrounding erythema, but there is a one centimeter area at the inferior aspect of the wound that has a large amount of serous drainage that is able to be expressed. She has a painless range of motion between 0 to 117 degrees. Irrigation and debridement with possible polyethylene exchange is the most appropriate treatment in this case for persistent drainage within a few weeks from total joint arthroplasty. Malenzak et al. performed a level 4 review of 8,494 patients undergoing a total knee arthroplasty. They found that patients with a body mass index greater than 50 had an increased odds ratio infection of 21.3 with a p-value of less than 0.0001. Diabetic patients were three times as likely to become infected compared to non-diabetic patients with a p-value of 0.0027. The next operative intervention to discuss for a prosthetic joint infection is a one-stage replacement arthroplasty. This is used way more commonly in Europe for infected total hip arthroplasties. Indications for this option is in cases where there is no sinus tract, and this is indicated in healthy patients with healthy soft tissues, with no prolonged antibiotic use, no bone graft, and in low virulence organisms with good antibiotic sensitivity. And the advantages of this option is lower cost and convenience with a single procedure as well as early mobility, 
The major disadvantage is a higher risk of continued infection from residual microorganisms. The outcomes are variable with success rates between 75 to 100%. The next operative intervention to discuss for joint infections is a two-stage replacement arthroplasty. It is considered the gold standard for an infected joint greater than four weeks after arthroplasty. Patients indicated for this option must be medically fit for multiple surgeries, they require adequate bone stock, and they of course require confirmation of microbial eradication via a benign clinical exam, normal labs, that is a normal white blood cell count, ESR and CRP, they also need negative aspiration cultures, and typically you should obtain repeat cultures at least two weeks after the planned antibiotic course has been completed. The technique for two-stage replacement arthroplasty is first explanting the prosthesis, Next is surgical debridement in which you must debride the bone implant interface and soft tissues. Following that is placement of an antibiotic spacer and then starting four to six weeks of IV antibiotics. The advantages of spacers is that they reduce joint dead space, provide stability, and deliver high-dose antibiotics. The disadvantages of spacers is that there is potential for local or systemic allergic reactions, an increased chance of developing antibiotic-resistant organisms, and that only heat-stable antibiotics can be added to the cement. These thermostable antibiotics that will not denature during the exothermic polymerization reaction involving the cement include vancomycin, tobramycin, and gentamicin. The aminoglycosides, gentamicin and tobramycin, are effective against gram-negative bacilli and are synergistic against gram-positive cocci like staphylococcus and enterococcus, and they have low risk of systemic toxicity. Vancomycin is effective against gram-positive cocci and has excellent elution properties. Either static or dynamic slash articulating spacers can be used. The advantages of static spacers are that they allow delivery of higher doses of antibiotics, and they are not pre-made. Static spacers by nature allow for better wound healing since there is no joint motion. The advantages of articulating spacers is that there is decreased reimplantation exposure time, better maintenance of joint space and motion, decreased quad shortening, and there is better patient satisfaction. Both spacer types have equivalent functional outcomes and rate of infection recurrence. As far as spacer antibiotics, a low dose involves 2 grams of antibiotics per 40 grams of cement, and high dose typically involves greater than or equal to 3.6 grams of antibiotics per 40 grams of cement. The highest doses of spacer antibiotics without systemic toxicity includes 12.5 grams of tobramycin per 40 grams of cement and 10.5 grams of vancomycin per 40 grams of cement. Commercial antibiotic cement is always low dose. Examples include cobalt, GHV from Biomet, Palicos RNG from Zimmer, Simplex P from Stryker, Chemex Genta from Exactech, Smartset GMV from Depew, and Versabone AB from Smith & Nephew. The reference by Stevens et al. compared Simplex and Palicos bone cement in regards to elution in a TKA mold model. They found that initial as well as weekly, that is nine weeks total, elution rates were greater in the palicose spacers than the simplex models. They recommend use of the palicose cement in TKA models to target antimicrobial delivery while limiting the potential for systemic antibiotic-related toxicity. As far as practical doses of antibiotics to be used in cement, Vancomycin comes in one gram per vial. 
Tobramycin comes in 1.2 grams per vial, so you can use 3 grams of vancomycin and or 3.6 grams of tobramycin in 40 grams of cement. Use extra liquid monomer, that is 1.5 to 2 ampules per 1 bag of cement. The elution of antibiotics depends on cement porosity, surface area, where beads increase the surface area, and antibiotic concentration. As far as elution properties, there is typically a rapid release in the initial 24 hours, followed by a rapid decline in release rate. Combination dosing, both tobramycin and vancomycin, increases the release rate of antibiotics more than if each were used alone. Typically, you will have low levels at five weeks, and experimental models do not show a difference in elution slash concentrations in conventional wound closure versus negative pressure wound therapy. The elution of an antibiotic is increased with increased porosity of a cement spacer, and this porosity increase can be obtained with hand mixing and avoiding the use of a vacuum-type mixing device. However, vacuum mixing removes air bubbles and enhances mechanical properties, but it may decrease antibiotic elution rates. Hand mixing may lead to uneven distribution of antibiotics within cement and may cause an inconsistent release. As far as the sequence of ingredients, adding vancomycin powder after cement powder plus liquid monomer mixed for 30 seconds results in greater elution. Joseph et al. reviews antibiotic impregnated cement in hip arthroplasty, and they note that the use of this cement in one or two stage revisions has lowered reinfection rates, with the spacers acting to reduce dead space while stabilizing the joint. Qui et al. reviews antibiotic impregnated cement for TKA and THA, and they report that the use of greater than 2 grams of antibiotic per 40 gram unit of cement weakens the cement, and that use of two antibiotics in conjunction may potentially increase elution. Some newer techniques to mention include vancomycin powder directly into wounds, and this is mostly found in the spine literature. Other techniques include antibiotic cement-coated IM nails, which are gaining popularity in the trauma literature, and local antibiotics bonded to implant surfaces. As far as the IV antibiotics course, Always wait to administer intraoperatively until aspiration and cultures are taken. They must be administered for four to six weeks after explant. And the initial empiric regimen should include a first-generation cephalosporin. However, vancomycin should be used if there is a true allergic sensitivity to penicillin or if there's a prior history or documented exposure to MRSA. And finally, use vancomycin if the organism is unidentified. The antibiotic regimen should ultimately be tailored based on microorganism and susceptibility testing. The final stage of the two-stage replacement arthroplasty is of course reimplantation. And in this final step, send tissue specimens for culture and frozen section to pathology. Implant only if all preoperative and intraoperative measures are acceptable. If intraoperative frozen section demonstrates acute inflammation, debride the wound, reapply cement spacer, and return later. As far as outcomes, early reimplantation within two weeks has a 35% success rate, and delayed reimplantation of greater than six weeks has a 70 to 90% success rate. Rasul et al. performed a level four review of 24 patients for a duration of two years with total knee arthroplasty infections. They found that 75% of patients with chronic that is greater than one month of deep infection were successfully treated with debridement, intravenous antibiotics, 
tolbromycin impregnated polymethylmethacrylate beads, and a delayed exchange arthroplasty with a mean interval of stage reimplantation being 8 weeks. Other important outcomes of two-stage replacement arthroplasty to remember are cementless reimplantation in the hip has better outcomes than cemented, and bilateral TKA resection arthroplasty followed by 6 weeks of antibiotics and bilateral reimplantation has excellent results at 2 year follow up. In a 2003 JBJS article, Wolf et al reported level 4 evidence of 18 patients that were followed an average of 5 years after bilateral TKA infection. 11 patients were initially treated with attempts to salvage the original prosthesis, that is polyethylene liner exchange, IND, IV antibiotics, and chronic oral suppressive antibiotics with prosthesis retention. 9 out of 11, that is 81% of patients, developed recurrent infection at a mean of 15 months. The other 10 patients initially underwent resection arthroplasty with cement spacer and a course of IV antibiotics. 7 of the 10, that is 70% of those patients, underwent reimplantation at a mean of 3 months, and none of those patients required revision at a mean of 2 years follow-up. Satisfaction rates were significantly higher among this group of patients, and the authors advocate the protocol of bilateral TKA resection arthroplasty with cement antibiotic spacer and a course of IV antibiotics, followed by prosthesis reimplantation. Other less desirable operative options for prosthetic joint infections include resection arthroplasty, arthrodesis, and amputations. Indications for resection arthroplasty alone are poor bone and soft tissue quality, recurrent infections with multi-drug resistant organisms, patients who are medically unfit for multiple surgeries, patients who have failed multiple previous reimplantations, and elderly non-ambulatory patients. The disadvantages of resection arthroplasty is a shortened limb, poor function, and patient dissatisfaction. The main technique for a resection arthroplasty is removing all the infected tissue and components with no subsequent reimplantation. Resection arthroplasties for total knee infections have a success rate between 50 to 89 percent, and resection arthroplasties for total hip infections have a success rate between 60 to 100%. With respect to arthrodesis, the indications for this option include when implantation is not feasible due to poor bone stock and recurrent infections with virulent organisms. There is a 71 to 95% success rate with bony fusion and infection eradication. Finally, the indications for an above-knee amputation are for total knee infections recalcitrant to other options, and when patients have severe pain, soft tissue compromise, severe bone loss, and or vascular damage. The complications for any of these treatments that we discussed is, of course, failure to eradicate infection. That's all for this review on prosthetic joint infections. This is the OrthoBullets audio review, a podcast by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Visit orthobullets.com or download the Bullets app on your iPhone or Android device for topics, questions, techniques, videos, and much more.